Well, we come to our third part in a series entitled The Redemptive Supremacy of Jesus Christ. I want to use the word redemptive to the point where we understand what the book of Hebrews is really about. The book of Hebrews is about the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That is what Hebrews is all about, magnifying the transfer of the redemption that stood for ages past under the old covenant and then now realized, brought to fruition and brought to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we've seen high Christology from this passage of Scripture. We have seen Jesus Christ supreme. We have seen Jesus supreme in that he is the supreme revealer of the word of God. Ages past, God spoke in various ways. He spoke to the fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, sort of bringing, thing to, bringing everything to a culmination, to a head, he has spoken with finality and he has spoken in a climactic fashion through Jesus Christ. We have also seen the Christology of this passage in the deity of Christ, which is magnified through his role, not only as revealer, but now as creator. As the creator, he upholds all things by the word of his power, by the word of his power, so that what we're looking at here, in essence, uh, what Hebrews is giving us in verses 1 through 3 proper is that This is the prologue of the book of Hebrews. If you would, it's the introduction. You want to know the book of Hebrews? Master, verses 1 through 3. And today, we'll touch on verse 4 a little bit. But really, what this whole passage is giving us is a picture of the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. He is prophet because he brings God's final message. He is king because he is the Davidic messianic son of God who rules over all creation, upholds everything by the word of his power. And then now what the text is stressing as we come now to the end of verse 3 is the priestly ministry of Jesus, the fact that he is priest, that he makes purification for our sins long ago was the ministry of Jesus as priest prophesied. Isaiah 59 verse 20 says, A Redeemer will come to Zion. The reason that's important is if you turn over to your Bible to chapter 12, the book of Hebrews gives us this little bit of realized eschatology right here, where it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to blazing fire, verse 18, 12, 18. He says, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet, to the sound of words, which sound was, was, was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the Redeemer of Mount Zion. That's what it's teaching. You have come to the the church of the firstborn, to the, the preeminent one. That's what firstborn is all about. You have come to the Redeemer of Israel. We have come to the Redeemer who has come to Zion as a significance of his people. And... If you turn over to chapter 9 now, Hebrews gives us one of the deepest and most profound statements on the redemption that Christ has wrought. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained, hear it, eternal redemption. This is the work of the Redeemer, the Redeemer that comes to set his people free. And with the focus on Jesus' high priestly role, we are introduced as Christ to Christ, 
the Redeemer, but redemption has everything to do with the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I want to focus on these three main points. That is, I want to look at the need for atonement. I want to look at the nature of the atonement. And lastly, what I've entitled the name of the atonement of Christ. Number one, our need for atonement. So if you look back to verse three, this kind of marks a clear transition in the text. It takes away the head noun, God, and then the head verb speaking to now focusing primarily on the son. Verse three, he is the radiance, no longer. God is this, God is doing that, but now it is God, uh, uh, his son is this, he is the radiance, he is the representation, he upholds all things by the word of his power, and now, looking forward here, the progression comes to a culmination. So we go from son, the heir, then we go to creator, sustainer, and now we come to the redeemer, who is the mediator of God's people. This is what we mean by his priestly work. And the text takes us into what Peter calls the sufferings of Christ and then the subsequent glories that follow the sufferings of Christ as we go from humility to exaltation. Or we could say exaltation through humility. Now the sufferings of Christ consist of his atoning work on the cross. His sufferings entail, however, our great need for him to suffer in our place, in our place. You can see this by the word that is used here in the text, purification. Katharismos is a word that just simply means to cleanse something, to cleanse something. It speaks of our great need for spiritual and moral purity. That is what mankind needs. He needs to be pure. He needs to be cleansed. He needs to be right in the sight of God, which of course he is not. As Isaiah himself tells us that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. In Jeremiah 17:9, our heart is in a desperate condition, being desperately wicked. We are sick. We have a spiritual sickness that only the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus can make pure again. Now, the word that's used here is not used a lot in the book of Hebrews. It's not used a whole lot here, uh, excuse me, in the New Testament, but it is used in Hebrews, this word purification. It's used in Hebrews repeatedly for the cleansing power of the death of Christ. Chapter 9 uh, that we read, verse 14, verses 22 and 23, all over the place, we are, we are brought to, to the reality that the blood of Jesus is able to do what previous blood was not able to do, which is to make the worshiper perfect, to use the language of chapter 9. We are, he is able to make the worshiper perfect. Now, this entire notion of the atonement is really expanded in the great body of the letter. If you, uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, all the way, almost to the end of chapter 10, is all honing in on the redemption of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the blood of Christ, the, 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 uh, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It only serves to prove the point further that what we have in these first verses is like a mini outline of the book. In the book of Hebrews, our need or atonement arises because of Adamic guilt. Because we are guilty in Adam, we inherit his sin nature, we inherit his corruption, his pollution, we inherit his death sentence, and therefore we need the second Adam to cleanse us of our sins. And Hebrews begins to show us this redemptive supremacy by comparing it to the inferiority of the Old Covenant. Look at, uh, again, chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. It says here, For if the blood of goats and bulls, this is Hebrews 9, 13, the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more, and that's a comparative clause that is used throughout the book of Hebrews to stress and to magnify the, the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The conscience is a powerful thing. It is part of our anthropology. It is part of our makeup. It is in us. It is part of us. We cannot rid ourselves of our conscience. And on the day of judgment, our conscience will be brought in like a prosecuting attorney, and it will agree with the judgment of God, having recorded every idle word we have ever spoken and every thought we ever had. There was conscience bearing witness the entire time. But praise be to God that he cleanses us and our deepest, deepest part, our conscience. He cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we would serve the living God. Thus, God's covenant people are looking for a more effective sacrifice, a more perfect atonement, a better, the, a better blood, a better covenant all together. Look at verse 15 there, chapter 9. He brings this out. The author brings this point out. He says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, the, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so that is where our need of redemption lies. It lies in the fact that we have edemic guilt. It lies in the fact that we have moral pollution, corruption, that we need to be cleansed. And it arises from the fact that uh, uh, under the old covenant, we're dealing with an inferior sacrificial system. And Jesus is better than all of that. So, and that, and that kind of segues into the second point, not just our need of atonement, but then the nature of the atonement itself. Brothers and sisters, Atonement is our life. Atonement is the reason you're here today. Atonement is the only reason you're going to be in heaven one day. Atonement is the reason that we will celebrate the work of the Lamb for all creation. Isn't it amazing? But that in heaven, we will be worshiping and singing and praising and declaring what Jesus did with his blood. That he was a lamb who was slaughtered on behalf of his people. Now, the nature of the atonement, I want to approach it by highlighting three things. It's efficacy, it's extent, and it's effects. It's efficacy, it's extent, and it's effects. The nature of the atonement is seen not only by contrasting the sacrifices of the old covenant but even more than that, even more than that in the perfect atonement that it brings, the efficacy of Jesus' atonement means that the death of Jesus actually accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. It actually accomplishes perfect atonement for the objects of atonement. It doesn't bring the objects of atonement, the people, and then leaves them half atoned for. No, there is a perfect atonement, thus a perfect redemption. The work of Christ and his salvation is a perfect work. It's a holistic work. He does not redeem people he does not atone for. He does not atone for people that he doesn't aim to redeem. And he doesn't redeem and atone for people that he does not aim to obtain one day, to receive Redemption is all about God paying a ransom and obtaining an object for his possession. And that's what he does. That's what he does. The old covenant was inferior. Why? Because you could be part of the cultic practices of Israel. You could be a member in the covenant you could belong to the covenant people of God. You could belong to the commonwealth of Israel and yet have no actual purification for your sin. For your sin. The atonement under the new covenant, however, accomplishes the very work it was designed to do. To apply the atoning work of Christ to those who believe, who by faith have their consciences sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. 
perfect atonement with perfect application. That's the efficacy of the atonement. Propitiation, which is a word that pastors always want their people to learn. (laughs) Know what propitiation means. I've said that several weeks ago because propitiation is rooted in the perfection of the atonement. Scripture speaks of taking away sin, and that's expiation, the removal of sin and the guilt of sin. Propitiation is removing the wrath of God, satisfying the anger of God. A sacrifice is never received if God is not satisfied. God has to be satisfied. He needs to be placated. He must be appeased in order for the atonement to be efficacious. And the atoning work of Jesus accomplishes that very, very thing. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, please. Because here we have a statement about the efficacious nature of Jesus' atoning work as our mediator as our advocate. Look at what it says. Verse 1, 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, not of our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. And we will get to the extent of the atonement in a minute. But just just to see that the perfect atonement of Christ perfectly absorbs the wrath of God. God is angry at sin. You can guarantee that. So that all of the sins that were committed, as it says, under the first covenant, God was angry at those sins He was not pacified in those sins. He was not appeased in those sins. And so a sacrifice had to take place that would remove that anger, that displeasure. In other words, purification is actually made through the propitiation of Jesus' blood, his sacrifice. This is precisely what the world does not understand that there is no measure of good things that you can do that will appease the wrath of God. Well, first of all, we have to establish that in a culture like ours, a postmodern culture, a politically correct culture, it is no longer okay to talk about God being angry in the first place. God is not allowed to be angry in our culture. He is not allowed to be a God of judgment. He is not allowed to be a God of wrath. We have put God in a box to say you must only express these convenient attributes of who you are, which amounts to idolatry. Idolatry. Now, he accomplishes a perfect redemption, brothers and sisters, because only a perfect redemption will do. God demands absolute perfection in the sacrifice. You know that. But let me just uh, stress the perfection of the atonement of Christ by emphasizing what the text says here. In sitting down, having made purification for sins, and then sitting down, what an interesting posture. You understand, the tabernacle had no chairs. There wasn't a lazy boy in the tabernacle. There wasn't a bench. There wasn't a entertainment couch. There wasn't even a fold-out chair that you could buy at Walmart. There was nothing to sit down on. It meant the priest has to keep working and working and working and working. It meant that God required perpetual offerings because the type of offerings that were being offered by the high priest in Israel were not sufficient to deal with the sin of the people. They were preparatory They were future signifying. They were typological. They were looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. And so when it says that Jesus entered into the tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, and then he performs his ritual, his cultus, his ceremony of sprinkling his blood, of dishing out atonement, then he sits down. 
For the first time in human history, a high priest gets to sit down and rest from the work that he is called to do. Why? Because perfect atonement has been made. What good news for us when we are tempted and when all of the forces of hell come against us in our trial or our temptation or our sanctification or our walk with Christ to tell you and me what interest do you have with Jesus? What part do you have with all this? Do you really think that you're forgiven all of those sins? My dear friends, the only reason that you can have confidence of the fact that God will not strike you dead for the things that you did on the way to church today is because of the atoning work of Christ and because he sat down at the right hand of God and because it says, mission accomplished, sacrifice received. God receives the sacrifice that the Son offers. The Son offers. Where does the hope of eternal life come from? Not from our deeds, not from our works. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 gives us a succinct, it gives us a well-rounded view of all of this. It lays it all out for us here to see the need for our sanctification, or the need for purification as it's made apparent as well as the nature of the abiding and positional righteousness. The reason why we as Christians don't get up and panic after we sin and say, oh no, maybe I lost eternal life today. It wouldn't be eternal, but in the first place, I don't know how people can believe that you can lose eternal life. I mean, it's called eternal life for a reason <laughs> because it lasts forever. You cannot lose eternal life. But where does the hope of eternal life come from? Not from our deeds. Not from the things that we're able to do. It comes from the efficacy of Jesus' atoning work. Again, Titus 3.3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. There is the practical application right there. Practical application. Men are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Do you know that the jihadists are fighting within themselves now? ISIS is fighting al-Qaeda, and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is fighting al-Ariki, or whatever his name is. They are fighting each other, hating and hating one another even though they're supposed to agree that Islam is the way. No, the human condition is as such that it can never dwell in peace. There is no such thing as a utopia that is coming. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword, division, to set people in their households against one another. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you know exactly what I mean by this. That because of your allegiance to Jesus, you are not welcomed at certain family gatherings. Or it has disturbed the unity that you once had. I can go into my own personal testimony, but I will resist for verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So in other words, not going to church, not being raised in a Christian home, children. It's not because mommy and daddy are Christians, you're saved now. It doesn't mean that because you got baptized or you became a, a theologian. It's not because you went to seminary that you are saved. No, it's not because of deeds that we have done in righteousness. How many seminarians have I met who are completely apostate now, devoid of Christ? I had a good, a good friend of mine um, not too long ago. Many of you would, would know who I'm talking about. Went to seminary, got a degree, started an international ministry known by pretty much everyone in this room only to come to find out that just a few years ago he believes he was genuinely converted. He was preaching in evangelical circles. He was preaching 
in conferences. He was preaching abroad. He was preaching on the mission field. He was preaching here. He was preaching in schools and seminaries. And all the while, he was completely unconverted. Why? Because he is not saved by the things that he has done in righteousness, but he is saved, watch this, because of God's mercy by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does that mean? You inherit the hope of eternal life. You don't have the hope of eternal life. What do you have in a world that's just falling apart? I mean, just this week, I was astounded at what I was reading on the news. Oh, yes, there's the Middle East, there's ISIS, there's bombs going into Israel, there's Hamas, there's all of this, and now the media is saying, the Ukraine is saying, all-out war is imminent. And Putin is saying, don't mess with Russia because we have nuclear weapons. When was the last time you heard talk like that? And on top of that, Fox News, implanted human chips are coming in a decade. Okay, regardless of your eschatology, gloves off. Okay. I just found it strange. <laughs> Here we are, just deteriorating as a society. Utah lifted the ban off polygamy. And we're talking about putting computer chips in human beings, so as the article said, so that you can conveniently purchase what you need at Walmart. This is real. This is where we are. If you don't inherit the hope of eternal life, what hope do you have in a world like this? You say, oh man, this is pessimistic, man. I came to be lifted up. I'm going to lift you up, dear friends, but I'm going to lift you all the way up to the hope of eternal life because in this world, the book of Hebrews teaches us we don't have any abiding city Frisco is a nice city, but it will not abide. We have no lasting city in this place. All it takes is one tornado, EF5, to rip through this neighborhood to make everyone instantaneously conscious of what I'm talking about. And you don't put your hope anymore in your big, you know, 100-inch flat-screen television or your plush luxurious car, you know, whatever. God means to strip, strip us of our hoping in this world. And he will use whatever means necessary to get us to that point. Everything else is delusion. We have to have a total crisp, crystal clear hope. Because we live in a world of deception. We live in a world of lies. We live in a world where people... Like a gentleman told me the other day at, at UNT, I don't even know if I exist. And I don't want you to know if you exist either. I mean, this is what we're dealing with. Complete, total, epistemological meltdown. A society that is reaping what it has sown for decades and decades of postmodernism, where we don't even know what a family is anymore. Facebook eradicating, eradicating gender distinctions. You don't have to put male or female anymore. You could put undecided. I don't know what I am. I mean, this is staggering evil that we're in. And if we're going to hope in the Disneyland Christianity that so many churches in this neighborhood are hoping in, we are going to become disillusioned and disenfranchised with Christianity. As Jesus himself taught in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, because of the word, you will fall away. That's for the false convert. Now, I am so glad for a rock. I am so grateful for the atoning glory of Jesus Christ, that he makes perfect atonement, perfect propitiation, and then applies it perfectly to his people. So what is the extent of the atonement? 
Atonement is made for those whom God has chosen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, not often a passage that is used to talk about definite atonement, to talk about the absolute perfect atoning application of Jesus Christ. But we do have a text, verses 14 and 15. So this is 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And we looked at this as Sunday school, all these all passages. Does this mean universalism? Does this mean, as Rob Bell went on to tell the whole world, love is going to win in the end and everybody is going to heaven despite what Jesus says very clearly in Matthew chapter 7, narrow is the way, few will be there that find it. Actually, no, the text goes on, I think, to explain itself. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If universalism is true, that means everyone would be living for the glory of God, which, of course, is not what is happening. But even more, Matthew, Matthew 1.21 is not a proof text for Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. This is pure Old Testament covenant language. The concept of atonement, the concept of cleansing and purifying of sins, that is all rooted in the Old Testament. The teaching about the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Teaching about the blood of the covenant, Exodus 24. Teaching about the spotless, the spotless lamb, Exodus 12, 5. Where does the Lamb of God language come from? John 1, 29, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That comes directly from Exodus 12, 5, that God demands a perfect Lamb that is able to remove sin. And so, of course, this adds to the argument that the whole volume of the book is written of him, Exodus 12, Leviticus 16, Exodus 24, Psalm 40, which is a description of the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That is all written of him. Now, in terms of the supremacy of Jesus, the author begins here to focus in on the supremacy of Christ over all of the sacrificial system of Israel. It has been laid waste. The Jews today are not sacrificing in Israel. There is no ability to perform sacrifice any longer. I believe God made it so. He left the house of Israel desolate. Not one stone on top of the other one, Jesus said. It has been completely destroyed. Why? Because of the book of Hebrews. It has been set aside. It has been superseded. It has been surpassed by a greater sacrificial lamb, namely Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us. Not a lamb, not a goat, not a calf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The idea of something becoming a curse for you because you are cursed as a sinner, under the weight of the law, condemnation under the law, guess what? You are cursed aside from Christ. You are cursed and therefore you need something to bear the curse on your behalf. Enter in the analogy of the two goats that is described for us, I think, in Deuteronomy. What is it? Or is it Leviticus? The sacrificial goats that they would bring into the camp, they would lay their hands on one, they would, they would sacrifice one, lay their hands on the other one, send it out as a scapegoat into the field. Aaron would lay his hand on the goat, it would go out into the field, symbolically representing that that goat, there he goes, into the wilderness, into the field, out of the camp, with the sin of the camp, bearing the guilt, bearing the curse. And that is what Jesus did. In Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says that he was stricken for us. 
He was, the, our chastisement fell on him. It was as if God takes that priestly role of laying on the son the iniquity of us all, becoming that sacrificial lamb, becoming that scapegoat on our behalf. And this is very powerful because this means that the way has been opened. A new and living way, Acts chapter 13. This is a very important parallel to the book of Hebrews because in Acts chapter 13, here you have the apostles witnessing to the Jews. So you have an apostolic evangelism to the Jews. And what does he focus on? The very same things that Hebrews focuses on. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him and the him in the passage is Jesus. But guess what? If you jump up to the context before that, it is the Davidic king who does not undergo decay, which is a quote going back to, I think it's Psalm 116. But it says here that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's exactly what we're looking at here in Hebrews 1. Verse 3, purification of sins through the Son. That, it says, through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes, watch this, is freed from all things. What are you freed from? Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. You are freed from all of the requirements all of the ordinances that were stacked against us, all of the violations of God's holy law, you have been freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The law was good, the law was holy, the law was right, but the law in and of itself was impotent to justify. It was able to condemn, and that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, it was a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death, but it was not a ministry of life. It could not impart life. So now Jesus stands as our mediator, the mediator between God and man, all that he represents. He suffers in the place of sinners that he came to redeem. He cleanses us. Acts chapter 15, verse 9, we have been cleansed of our sin and our misery. In order to purify a people for himself, that is the goal. He wants a bride. But if she is going to dwell with him, she would have to be pure spotless, blameless, and that is exactly what the bride of Christ is undergoing right now. It's undergoing sanctification. It's undergoing beautification. It is the bride being adorned for her husband. That is what God is doing now. Lastly, we looked at the need for the atonement. We looked at the nature of the atonement. And lastly, the name of the atonement. Because this really gets to the effects of the atonement. When the text says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 3, what is being stressed there, as we saw, is the finality of his atoning work. That as high priest, his work is finished. It is the once-for-all nature of the atonement. But there is something else. And that is, there is absolute vindication of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? It means that the, the, the offering, it means that the atonement, it means that the sacrifice of Jesus was acceptable. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. And if you don't like to turn in your Bible... I am sorry, but I'm going to make you turn to various passages of Scripture because it's important for you to see it with your eyes, even if you swipe over on your phone. I don't care if you're using a phone or if you have a Bible, but you better not come to church without a Bible. And if I see you without a physical Bible and I ask you, where's your Bible, you better whip out your phone. You don't come to church without a Bible. You just don't do that. You just don't do that. Anyway, see how, anyway. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3, verse 1 to verse 4, this is all about Jesus Christ, right? 
I tell people, I want to teach you about Jesus Christ, turn to Leviticus chapter 1. It takes people a minute to wrap their brain around that, but it's true, 100% true. It says in verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Watch this, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. The sacrifice has to be acceptable or the worshiper will not be accepted. And you and I, if you turn back to Hebrews, please, if you turn back to Hebrews, this is why the book of Hebrews stresses the fact that perfect, perfect, uh, 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 perfect atonement had to be made. And the worshiper had to be perfect. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. It says, well, back up to verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect. You see, the perfection of the worshiper was not possible with old covenant sacrifices. The only thing that made the worshiper perfect was putting their faith and what the sacrifice signified. And Jesus Christ, having made perfect sacrifice, now only requires that we look to him, that we look to Jesus alone. This is why he sat down. He sat down because his sacrifice was accepted. And because by accepting his sacrifice, you and I are also accepted. Now, the verse here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 goes on. It says that he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It means that he has been exalted now. He has been exalted now. Jesus has ascended his exalted session, as they call that. His status as the king enthroned. So how does Hebrews describe Jesus? There he is at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he sits enthroned over the world. That's the picture that we're being given here. At the right hand of the majesty on high just refers to the throne of God. It speaks of he's at the right hand of God's authority. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Why? Because he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But there is more to this than that. This phrase, the right hand of the majesty on high, finds its origins in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 says, sit it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Another enthronement psalm showing Jesus as enthroned. Jesus, the king, on his throne, ruling, reigning, supreme, all authority given to him. And he means for us to apply this to him. If you turn to Matthew 26, this is just one place where the gospel identifies this, but Matthew 26, perhaps the most dramatic portion of Scripture, where you're going to find Jesus attributing this psalm to himself. There he is. He's at the Sanhedrin. He's debating the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the scribes. He's at the Sanhedrin before Caiaphas, and he attributes this psalm to himself. It says in verse 63, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. In other words, out of your own mouth, the truth came out. <laughs> I am the Christ, the Son of God. But he says, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so what do they do but they tear their clothes and, and scream blasphemy? 
you have heard the blasphemy. He has uttered blasphemy. Why? Because, of course, he claimed to be the divine Son of God, the Messiah, the Davidic King. So this Messianic Psalm brings us back now full circle. Begins with the Son of God, ends with the Son of God. And this gets now to the issue of the name. So not just, not just the need and the nature of the atonement, but the name of the atonement, which I'm zeroing in on this phrase where it says in verse 4, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And what is the name that Jesus has inherited but the name Son? Look at verse 5. For, to prove his point, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? So they in he inherits the title of the Davidic messianic son. Now we've got to be careful here and zone in. Don't, don't tune out on me. Tune in. Tune, you tuned out, tune back in because this is important. Because the text is not suggesting at all that this is the first time Jesus was the son of God. And lamentably... John MacArthur's commentary on Hebrews really misses the boat here. Uh, John MacArthur, who I respect more than almost anybody on, on exposition, uh, and from my understanding, John MacArthur changed his position on this issue because he originally was denying the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, which I thought was really just out there. But G basically, MacArthur is saying that, that prior to his incarnation, Jesus was not regarded as the Son of God which I, I just can't come to that conclusion and neither, neither, can, neither did any other exegetical commentary that I have and neither did any other theologian that I respect. Um, no, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He proceeds from the Father eternally, eternally. He is begotten eternally of the Father. I mean, that's what the, the historic creeds of the Christian church have stated and so, no, this does not mean that Jesus became the Son of God. It just means that he ascended to the throne of David. See, this goes back to the Davidic messianic title that is given to David. And David, it is said of him that he is the Son of God, and it is said of, of Solomon that he will be a Son of God, and that God will be a Father to him. This is the title that Jesus is now assuming, and that he inherited by coming into the world. He didn't become the Son of God. He was disclosed as possessing the divine title as the Son of God. And so lastly and in conclusion, this name means that who we have in Jesus is a better mediator. Because you see, in Jewish theology, the angels played a very important role. They accompanied the giving of the law. They were looked at as mediators. They brought revelation of God to man. And what the author of Hebrews is now saying is, we have a better mediator now, better than angels. I mean, think about it. On the mountain, they're at, uh, on the mountain with Moses. They're on Sinai. Uh, Galatians chapter uh, 3, verse 9, speaks of this very fact that the law was mediated through angels. And in Jewish rabbinical literature, it's found all over the place that the angels accompanied the giving of the law and they acted like mediators between Moses and God. Amazing. And so what Hebrews is saying is that we now have a better mediator in Christ. He's a better, the word angelos just means messenger. We have a better messenger. We have a better mediator. Why? Because now we have the Son himself declaring God's covenant to us. Brothers and sisters, there has been a new and living way opened up for us. And what is the practical advice of the book of Hebrews for you and me? What is the practical advice that he wants us to know? Turn to chapter 12 and we'll close there. Practically speaking, the book of Hebrews is dense with theology. It's dense with imagery. It's dense with typology. It's dense with prophetic literature and Old Testament citations. Well, it all comes down to what the advice is of the author in chapter 12. Therefore, beginning in verse 1, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's practical. That's every day. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That's us running the race at work, at home, in the home, with the family, on the job, on the freeway, everything that we do. Running the race set before us. How? Verse 2 gives us this participle to explain to us how it is done. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Also beautiful. In other words, looking to Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, what he says is, fix your eyes on Jesus, and then he shows you, look at how I do it. Look at the way that I fix my eyes on Jesus, author, perfecter of faith, with the joy set before him. In other words, contemplating the person and work of Christ is how you look to Jesus. There's one Puritan that said, Ten looks to Christ, one look to yourself. That's how you're going to make it. When you get discouraged, look at Jesus ten times. Ten times as much as you look at yourself, as you look at your failure, as you look at your sin, as you look at your lack, because as many have pointed out, the longer we run the race, the further we get along in our course, the more magnified our sinfulness becomes. It should if you're growing. J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is as old as dirt. And he's written the forward and the introduction to half of the books in Christendom. And J.I. Packer says, now that he's well in his 80s or whatever, he said, the older I get, the more vile my sin appears. And the more you focus on how vile you are, how wicked your heart is, the more you need to look at Christ because it is a better sight. That's where our encouragement comes. That's where our endurance is going to come is by looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And next week, oh, I can't wait till next week. Jesus is better than the angels. 